Hi, this is Valerie Jackson, and this evening, Louis Reitzis will be going between the lines with Ralph LaRosa, author of Of War and Men, World War II and the Lives of Fathers and Their Families. Of War and The book opens with a discovery in your attic. Describe that scene, please. Well, I remember going up into my attic and opening up what I realize now is a footlocker. And inside that footlocker were pieces of uh, my dad's World War II uniform. How old were you? It's hard for me to put a, a, a time on it, but my recollection would be I'd be like eight or nine years old. A little boy. Right. And in there, there was uh, a jacket, which I now realize is often called an Eisenhower jacket because it's a short uh, at-the-waist jacket. And there also was a hat, which I describe as rectangular, but it's the kind of uh, hat that I realize now that uh, soldiers would often wear when they were en route um, because it lies flat. And there also was a handkerchief of sorts that had all these lines on it and it appeared to be a map and it was made out of silk. And uh, as a result of finding those materials, it sort of initiated a conversation with my parents about what these items were and they started telling me about the war and Mm -hmm. their involvement in it. And writing this book has brought you full circle to that, I imagine. It has. I mean, I, you know, I would ask them the same kinds of questions that a lot of eight and nine year olds would ask and later on would periodically ask them. Uh, My dad was in the Army Air Corps and was a radio man on B-series bombers. My mom was worked for a while in a Brooklyn uh, factory that manufactured uh, bomb sites and gyroscopes. Uh, But writing this book is you know, I've learned so much about the war and about its impact that I wish I could ask them more questions mm-hmm. today, and, but unfortunately I can't. Mm-hmm. Most of your research in sociology has been studying the family and more recently, past two decades or so, uh, fatherhood in particular. Tell us what you mean by the culture of fatherhood. Well, it's a very important distinction uh, between the culture and the conduct of fatherhood, and it's one that I've uh, accentuated through a lot of my writings. By the culture of fatherhood, uh, I generally mean the norms, the values, beliefs, the expressive symbols that are associated with fatherhood. So if there's a sense of, well, this is what fathers are expected to do, that would be the culture of fatherhood. If we're talking about the value that is attached to fathers versus, let's say, the value attached to mothers, that would be culture. If we're talking about Father's Day, you know, as a ritual, that would be the culture. It's important to distinguish the culture of father from the conduct of fatherhood, which is basically what fathers actually do when they're engaged in trying to be a father. And the reason why it's important to distinguish the two is because you can have changes in the culture of fatherhood that are not necessarily mirrored in the conduct of fatherhood. So, for example, for the, uh, over the course of the 20th century, the culture of fatherhood has shifted to and fro and sometimes going 
up, encouraging greater involvement, and at other times actually shifting down, encouraging a little bit less. And what happened, has happened, for example, is the culture of fathered might shift uh, up in the sense of encouraging greater father involvement, but dads would not necessarily become any more involved. So it's important to look at the two to see whether they're in sync, and if they're not, ask yourself why. Well, many people might be surprised to learn that before World War II, there was what you called a new fatherhood movement. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, it's been increasingly surprising to see that uh, the notion that, you know, fathers should get more involved is, is not a recent occurrence. Uh, it really goes back to the 19th century, but it was accelerated in the 20th century uh, in part because of uh, a whole scientific approach to child rearing that was emerging in the, uh, you know, in the 1920s in particular and, and 1930s as well. And it was this idea that, you know, you couldn't rely on instinct to be a parent. You couldn't rely on folklore. You had to rely on science. And so you have this proliferation of child-rearing books, popular magazines, for example, Parents Magazine is initiated in 1926. Um, and, 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 and a lot of this literature was encouraging men to become increasingly involved. So, for example, Parents Magazine between 1932 and 1937 had a special column called For Fathers Only, which it said outright that it had initiated because there were so many fathers supposedly reading the magazine. Wow. And then World War II broke out, and what happened? Well, that was one of the reasons I wrote the book. I wanted to see what happened when World War II broke out. Well, uh, uh, it basically put a lot of the new fatherhood movement on hold. If you look at popular magazine articles, uh, let's say throughout the 40s, and they're basically focusing on the war. If you look at advertisements uh, prior to the war, there were generally more advertisements showing men in uh, domesticated roles. You're not going to see much of that during the 40s. A lot of the ads during the war were uh, touting the significance of this or that product in winning the war. For example, the Dixie Cup uh, uh, company uh, was uh, was saying, in effect, that it was helping to fight the war because, you know, Dixie Cups kept people healthy. <laughs> uh, well, it's stepping back again a few years... Um, there was actually debate in Congress about whether it was appropriate to draft fathers or whether fathers of young children should be exempted. It's curious to think about now when we don't have a draft, when both men and women are on the front lines. Um, how how different the roles are now in terms of parents who are off at war or off in the service. And you spend a good bit of time addressing how the father's role was impacted while he was serving in whatever capacity. And and some of these um, letters are, are just heartbreaking. Yeah, I first of all, the the question of whether fathers should be drafted was debated in the summer of 1943, and in some ways, it was an outgrowth of the new fatherhood movement of the that preceded the war. 
because of the emphasis given to the role of fathers, uh, it was uh, uh, increasingly emphasized how important fathers were in the home. So fathers were exempt from the draft if they had uh, conceived a child on or before December 7th, 1941, which is, of course, the date of the attack on Pearl Harbor. But in 1943, uh, uh, a debate started as to whether the country could continue to exempt what some person calculated to be about 6 million men from active duty or being at least uh, potentially drafted. Uh, and uh, the debate went on in Congress with uh, with military generals coming to uh, basically make the case that if we don't draft these people, we could lose this war. Mm-hmm. And if you look at what was happening uh, in 1943, uh, although uh, Italy had surrendered, uh, uh, and so there was that opportunity uh, in terms of, uh, of uh, moving forward, uh, the Battle of Salerno was uh, really problematic, and people were very concerned. So uh, the debate continued. People who were very much in favor of father, fathers being more involved and emphasizing how important they were were arguing that the exemption should continue. In the end, it, it, was, it was eliminated, and six million fathers were put in a position where they would uh, be uh, susceptible to the draft. Now, that doesn't mean that there weren't any fathers in the military prior to 1943 because in the wake of Pearl Harbor, first of all, there are any number of fathers who are in the military as active duty personnel you know, having made the army a career or just being in the army. Then in the wake of Pearl Harbor, any number of fathers went and, and, and basically enlisted, sometimes alongside their sons. Fathers and sons would often do this together. And so the war, uh, as happens today, removed a lot of men out of the home, uh, often for extended periods of time, and uh, created a, a difficult situation all around in terms of trying to maintain contact with their children. And then when they came home, things were difficult then too. In, in that portion, you uh, have titled re-entry. You spend time describing um, other aspects of American involvement in World War II that were very unattractive. Um, the horror of Japanese-American internment and and describing how fathers were separated from families and the impact that had on families. And also the dichotomy with African-American fathers and their sons. Well, one of the things I wanted to do in this book was to... Uh, communicate the diversity of experiences. Sometimes in, in an effort to just simply talk about an event, we'll say, well, here's what happened to men or here's what happened to women, and we'll uh, present a picture in very monochromatic terms. But the diversity of experiences were significant. Of course, first you have the you know, uh, Japanese-American men. Uh, you know, over 110,000 Japanese were eventually imprisoned. Um, these were, uh, you know, uh, men and, and, and also women and children dislodged from their home, dislodged from their possessions and, and basically carted off to, uh, to, you know, prison camps. And these were Americans. Yes. Yeah, some of them were, uh, American citizens. Some of them had fought in World War II and there are pictures, 
uh, of at least in some instances, that when it was time for them to, to leave, some of the men were actually wearing World War I uniforms. Um, you have the experience for blacks. You know, it often is said, well, what happened with the war is uh, uh, it ended the Depression and it gave uh, men an opportunity to feel uh, that they were important again. Well, of course, that didn't necessarily apply to Japanese because they were being imprisoned. And as for blacks, they were being denied the opportunity to be in the military. Uh, And if they were being given the opportunity to be in the military, they were pushed into non-combat roles. So they had to fight to make a strong case that they should not only be in the military, but that they should be allowed to be in combat. Because they felt, as uh, others had felt before them from the Revolutionary War forward, in which blacks have always fought, that if they could show that they were willing to, you know, give up their life for this country, that they should be given uh, freedoms that otherwise didn't exist. They finally were given that opportunity to fight, in part because we could, you know, we were afraid of losing the war. And when they did serve, they served with distinction. And the same thing was true for the Japanese Americans who were eventually given the opportunity to serve. One of the letters that's particularly moving, is from Captain Gerald Marnell of Parsons, Kansas, who wrote his first letter to his two-year-old daughter just hours before he lost his life on a combat mission. Would you read that? I know that you can't read this letter now, but your mother will read it to you, and she will save her for you until you're old enough to read it yourself. Your daddy held you in his arms, When you were only a few minutes old, your daddy saw you grow. He would beam with pride and joy when he would watch your mother tuck you to sleep in her arms. Daddy saw you start to crawl and how you did get around. He remembered you standing alone and taking your first step and cutting your first tooth and saying your first word. Then came the day when your daddy had to say goodbye. You cried so hard when daddy was driving away, and daddy shed a tear himself. Your daddy didn't want to leave you, but he had to go to help make your country a safe and free place to live in. Little baby, God has blessed you with the finest mother in the world, and daddy loves your mother very much. Be good to your mother, Geraldine. There's no one else like her in the world. Daddy won't write much more to you. He will be back home someday, and you and he will play together again. Daddy asks God every night to guide and watch over you and your mother. Yeah, letters like that um, were tough to read, and as they are now, especially when you knew what happened. And he didn't. No. And, uh, you know, the, it, it, you know it was just, it's just hard to read those letters. If you're just joining us, we're going between the lines with Ralph LaRosa, author of a book about World War II in the lives of fathers and their families, of war and men. Let's talk about the different ways in which fathers were judged over the decades. Um, You mentioned this momentum, this fatherhood movement before the war 
in the 20s and 30s. And, and then after the war, there's a division between the first part of the 1950s and the second part. Well, again, this goes back to the culture of fatherhood versus the conduct of fatherhood. If, if we look at the culture of fatherhood, let's say from the turn of the 20th century to the beginning of World War II, we see the culture of fatherhood becoming increasingly open to the idea that men should become involved. There were essentially, you know, three messages that were given to men. Um, one that the, is that they should be good providers, good economic providers. The second was that they should be pals and companions to their children. And the third was that they should be male role models to both their daughters and their sons. So you can plot uh, these three messages uh, over time. One of the questions I had was there was this modernization of fatherhood, so to speak, that was occurring, as I said, from the turn of the century to the beginning of World War II. So one of my questions is what happened when the war hit and thereafter? Some scholars have suggested that the modernization of fatherhood pretty much continued, that uh, men were, in fact, increasingly being told to become more involved, to be increasingly being asked to be male role models and so on and so forth. To some degree, that's true. But you have to be careful and not treat the post-war era as if it were a singular unit. In pouring over these materials and plotting changes over time, for example, looking at the first edition of Spock and comparing it with the second edition, looking at uh, the infant care manuals that the government put out and looking at one edition to the next and seeing in particular what did they change, you know, even if it was a single word. What became clear was from the end of World War II to the election of John F. Kennedy, the modernization of fatherhood that had been occurring prior to the war was reversed. That in effect, there was a traditionalizing effect that the war had on, on the culture of fatherhood. So that if you look at the early 50s and the late 50s, they're very different with the late 50s being a very traditional time in American history. And there's a lot of evidence in support of that, whether you look, and I did, whether you're looking at infant care manuals, whether you're looking at popular magazines like Parents Magazine, whether you're looking at television, you can compare the early 50s show with the late 50s shows, or whether you're looking at comic strips, which we've poured over too. Sounds like you had fun. I, I, yeah, I did. I enjoyed, uh, you know, I enjoyed uh, uh, looking at the television shows. They brought back a lot of memories. I have to admit that I watched a lot more TV when I was a kid than I should have, but I remembered all of these shows. But what I also remember too, and I was reminded of it by this, is that, you know, very often when people talk about Father in the 50s, they'll talk about Father Knows Best, Leave it to Beaver, Ozzie and Harriet, and so on. These were not popular shows at the time were as popular as we think they they were. That's remarkable. I mean, the the shows that were extremely popular were the Westerns. And uh, if you look at the Nielsen ratings, they were were beating out uh, many of the uh, shows that we, uh, for whatever reason, continue to remember. So there's this wistfulness in our collective memory for what Father Knows Best and Leave it to Beaver and Ozzie and Harriet said to us? I, there certainly is a nostalgia that is associated with the 50s 
that uh, that continues to be nurtured on you know late night TV and reruns and so on and so forth. Uh, but if you go back and you try to you know ask yourself, well, what was it like for the people at the time? You have to look at the evidence, and the evidence shows a very different picture. Of course, there was an entire part of the population who not only was not represented in those sitcoms, but who were in the throes of a terrific struggle. Uh, without a doubt. I mean, again, if you look at the, the plight of black Americans and you appreciate what it meant to be young and black or a, a black father and mother and compared it with the, what people were thinking at the time, is a huge uh, uh, difference. Uh, John Lewis says that when, you know, he, he was aware of the murder of Emmett Till and he followed the trial and he was about the age that Emmett Till was. And he, in his own, in his book, Walking with the Wind, he said, I could have been uh, Emmett Till. That could have been me. And it's important that when we look at the diversity of experiences that we, and we look at the 50s, that we appreciate the different experiences that people had and that uh, for blacks in particular, it was a horrific time. And to, and to try to paint the 1950s in, uh, you know, in nostalgic terms without you know, paying sufficient attention to the racism uh, that existed uh, is really a disservice. Interesting that you note Emmett Till's father served in World War II himself, and an awful story attached to that. You mentioned John Lewis, and there's another local connection. Maynard Jackson here is talking about his grandfather and about uh, how proud he was of him. And uh, Maynard Jackson, uh, Dobbs's grandson, and Atlanta's first black mayor, was shown a photograph of his grandfather picketing the store. Picketing riches. Yes. Dobbs was attired in a fine three-piece suit and gray trench coat and carried a placard that read, quote, wear old clothes with new dignity. Don't buy here. Close quote. Seeing his father in the photo brought tears to Jackson's eyes. His grandfather. Seeing, you know, his grandfather in the photo brought tears to Maynard Jackson's eyes. Look at that jaw set, the grandson declared. He would have walked through hell, bare feet if he had to. What a man. And you titled that chapter. What a man. At the conclusion of the book, you talk about, you write about the 1960 presidential election and suggest that fatherhood may have factored into the victory of John F. Kennedy. Yeah, I think it, it factored in in, in, in two ways. Uh, one way it factored in was uh, the, uh, fa- you know, the extent to which Caroline was being, uh, you know, basically, uh, talked about in the press and uh, was uh, photographed uh, with the candidate. The JFK's plane was called Caroline. And, uh, uh, you know, one, one newspaper uh, 
editor or journalist referred to Caroline as the, you know, the best, you know, person on the tra- campaign trail for JFK. Um, it's interesting when we look at the results of the election, we find that JFK and Nixon broke pretty much even, even with older women, but with young women, uh, many of whom were mothers of JFK beat, uh, Nixon by 10%. It's a, you know, a very close election. So one real possibility is this fatherhood factor of, of you know, JFK being the father of a, of a young child and uh, he, another child was on the way. That could have been, a, a, you know, a key factor. The other thing was that during the election, uh, during the campaign, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested and here in Atlanta. And the decision had to be made by the candidates as to whether they were going to speak out on it. And uh, Nixon chose not to, feeling that as a lawyer it would not be appropriate. But JFK chose to intervene. And he, uh, through uh, his brother, uh, Robert F. Kennedy, uh, intervened to uh, help get Martin Luther King Jr. Jr. out of jail. Well, Martin Luther King Jr. did not, as a result of that, endorse Kennedy. But Martin Luther King Sr. did and basically said, I have to acknowledge what he did for my family. And Martin Luther King Sr. said he would do whatever he could to deliver uh, as many black votes as he could for JFK. And so you have uh, a concerned father uh, conveying, you know, look what he did. With with very stirring words about you can't have someone do this i mean i would have to paraphrase the, you can't the, have someone do what this man did for my children and not acknowledge how important it is basically that would be a paraphrase the book of war and men world war Two, in the lives of fathers and their families the author professor ralph Larosa. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lois. Between the Lines is brought to you in part by Jack Mott Hospitality and a generous anonymous supporter. We thank you. To learn more about the books and authors featured on Between the Lines, go to our website at wabe.org slash btl and listen to an archived program. Or check out our suggested reading list for both children and adults. To subscribe to a podcast of the program, go to our website and click on Podcast. Be sure to join us next week for another engaging program because there's always more to learn when you go between the lines. The executive producer of this program is Lois Reitzes. Producer, Marjorie Lancer. Editor and technical producer, Mike Johns. Opening and closing music by Afro Blue. And I'm your host, Valerie Jackson. Between the Lines is a production of 90.1 WABE.